So I'm very pleased to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Ulrich Haase, who is Head of Philosophy at Manchester Metropolitan University. He is author of uh, books on Maurice Blanchot and uh, Nietzsche, which a book has recently been translated into Chinese, uh, and numerous papers on phenomenology, on Heidegger, uh, etc. And uh, I'll let Uli tell you what he's going to talk about. Good idea, thanks. <coughs> um, First of all, I'm coming from a different generation, so my first remark in my paper is, before beginning right on the board, uh, which I can't do any longer now. <laughs> what I would have written is something which most of you will be aware of, namely the German for Leib und Leiben, which means for the human body in that respect, uh, especially for expressions like Leiben des Leben, which Heidegger uses, which is a bit more difficult. Leben is obviously to live. Uh, life is leben, in other words, it's something like a bodily life, <coughs> where the word body already is understood in terms of that differentiation between life and körper in German, which means we don't call a human body with the same words that we call a stone, for example, or other bodies. And that comes up here and there, and the difficulties to translate it. <coughs> anyway, uh, I wanted to begin with a quotation, relatively famous quotation from Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, which runs as follows. Following the guide of the living body, taken that the soul was an attractive and enigmatic thought, which, with reason, philosophers have only reluctantly given up. Maybe that which they will learn to trade for it is even more attractive, even more enigmatic. The human body, in which the whole of the farthest and nearest past of all organic becoming reawakens and becomes body, to which and beyond which an enormous but inaudible stream seems to flow, the living body is a more stupendous thought than the old soul." End quote. Now, uh, Patrick sent around a short like, uh, summary of the paper that I'm going to give. The summary goes a bit further than what I'm actually being able to do here. Uh, I jumped into this slot only two days ago, and I thought that the paper that raises the difficulties of talking about the body might just be well-placed to open up the much more concrete discussions that arise in the following papers and in the afternoon. So what to say about the body? <clears throat> the body seems to be that which we know best and most comprehensively. The body seems to be that entity that we can dominate nowadays completely to the degree that we are not only able to take a hand off one body and fix it to another body, this hand obviously of which Heidegger made so much, but to the degree that we can even dream of making the body itself immortal like the ancient soul. Indeed, we know the body so well, it seems, that we even take it as a springboard finally to master the soul, the mind or spirit, by way of a newly dominant neuroscience, whose aim it is not only to make phenomenology superfluous, but to replace philosophy altogether. <clears throat> Which means we nowadays seem to come to a state where the whole of philosophy becomes, in that sense, superfluous, because it does not any longer, so to speak, master the discourse on the living body. <clears throat> so what can I add to that in 30 minutes? I guess what I can just about manage to do is to clarify the <coughs> cornerstones of my interest in the question of the body as it develops from being in time, that is, from the question of the meaning of being. Uh, all this implies a bit of knowledge of earlier and later Heidegger and other things, but uh, where that is not uh, given, you can always clarify it afterwards in questions. 
So, as I mentioned, in this movement from being in time, that is from the question of the meaning of being to the later Heidegger, that is to the question of the history of being. And what I'm obviously trying to do is to link that back to this quotation of Nietzsche's, namely of the living body in which the whole of the furthest and recent past comes together. <clears throat> now, these two parts of his methodology, namely of the meaning of being and the history of being, Heidegger calls in the recently translated black notebooks, I quote, the way of subversion and the way of meditation. That is, as the two ways of reaching an understanding of history. And that again in the sense of Heideggerian idea of Geschichte, which means of that of a fundamental history beyond that which we never uh, sort of can possibly know in terms of history that we use as historiology. That this means to identify the question of the body in the two parts of Heidegger's path of thinking, which both seem to be the furthest away from giving us any insightful insights into the questions of embodied life. <clears throat> in other words, the question is, if there's anything of interest to be found here in terms of our understanding of embodied life, considering two things. <clears throat> Firstly, namely, the general consensus seems to be that Heidegger, in being in time, has nothing much at all to tell us about the body, that the word body hardly even appears in it. On the more radical end, the claim is that the whole of being in time fails precisely on account of its failure to speak about the human body. Uh, so other words, I mean, when I say what can we find here, at the outset it seems not much at all. Secondly, what would the question for the history of being have to do with the phenomenon of embodied life. <clears throat> and how is this question to make anything more intelligible, considering that most commentators do often take this to be the more wacky part of Heidegger's work? Even people closer to him, like Pögler, for example, thought that he had somehow gone too far, too far into the unintelligible, and too far in the direction of taking a too negative stance in relation to the judgment of modern life. So in other words, the second part is that precisely the question of the body, does that not belong to the more uh, everyday idea as we find it in being in time, where it's not even mentioned, rather than to that which seems to go beyond the everyday experience of, for example, the hand, namely in his later works. In other words, again, the problem that hides for us the dimension of Leiblichkeit, as it's called as well, Leiblichkeit, bodiliness, although that doesn't make much sense, in Heidegger's thought, is thus the most mistrusted notion in his work, which the vast majority of commentators try to distance themselves from, namely again this notion of the history of being. Lately, it seems, they have just attached the label of anti-Semitism to it in order to cut it out of the problematic of philosophy altogether. The long list of thinkers from Gadamer, Bayer Pögler, Dieter Henrich, or Dominique Janicot, as many others, so the difficulties in accepting the historical depth of Heidegger's method. I guess the central problem, just to repeat that again, behind this short deliberation is, does it really make any sense at all to speak of the historicality of human embodiment? And that means obviously not only just a kind of historical account of how one has seen the body over the last hundreds of years. It may be somewhat clearer idea of the unease we tend to have with Heidegger's historical reflection can be derived from Daniela Valiga-Noy's uh, nicely 
titled The Bodily Dimension of Thinking, which not only expressly refuses this historic dimension of the question of the body, but even goes on to identify in this dimension, named of historicality or Geschichtlichkeit, the shortcoming of Heidegger's whole philosophy. It's obviously a bit strange because, I mean, if it is the direction of uh, Heidegger's philosophy, then it can't be just a shortcoming in it. Even though she never quite demonstrates this point, leaving it to the vague notion of I believe, which appears quite often in that text, she counters Heidegger's so-called grand historical schemes with a stress of small events, cashing in the idea of a closeness to life against the grand historical gestures, as she calls them, which are presumably, therefore, much too abstract. And yet what Heidegger has in mind is not really a grand history, but more equivalent to Nietzsche's dictum that the events that determine history come silently on doves' feet. That was a quote from Nietzsche, by the way. Now, if I had more time, I would try to clarify what is wrong with the famous... Sorry, there seems to be a bit of a jump, maybe why I decided to jump to Sartre. Uh, the reason behind that is that, obviously, people have always said, look, Heidegger being in time, the word body hardly ever appears. Afterwards, it doesn't appear much either. Uh, whereas, obviously, the Heideggerian who managed to bring about the great philosophy of the body, namely Sartre, would have tried to address this problem much more head-on. Uh, that is why, for example, Deleuze, in his uh, book The Logic of Sense, says once that, Heidegger, uh, sorry, that Sartre is the first great philosopher of the body. <coughs> Right of the first grand philosophy of the body. Therefore, in order to make the claim again that maybe one can return back to the problematic in Heidegger, what I would have done in longer <coughs> paper would have just tried to say why or what is wrong with Sartre's account of the body, <coughs> with Sartre's solution to this light problem, the problem of embodiment. We would try to do so by the reading not only of being in nothingness but also by presenting you with a very well-articulated research paper criticizing Sartre's stance, namely the essay Sur la question du corps dans la pensée Heidegger, which is not translated, but I only quote the title in French, so it doesn't matter, uh, by an author called Maxence Caron, published in 2008. Now, what would that have helped us? <coughs> Caron begins with Sartre's critique in order then to add the notion of the body to the argument of being in time, articulating this in respect to the later remarks in the Zollikonda seminars. I don't know if you know them. It's a text from the 50s, uh, basically Heidegger giving uh, an introduction to being in time to psychologists. A very good book if you want to know something about being in time, because it obviously explains it to non-philosophers, and therefore very clearly. <coughs> Uh, unless you think of the strange, unfortunately I can't draw anything again, the strange image heaps of Dasein or of human existence, which looks a bit odd and nobody has ever understood it. Uh, maybe, except the psychologists who are sitting there. <clears throat> but what sense can it make to introduce the conception of the body into the language of being and time? It sounds a bit as if Heidegger just overlooked the problem, rather than this non-mentioning of it being something which is quite... Uh, important to the book itself and to its topicality. And will this not also, this introduction, introduce all the pitfalls that Heidegger tried to avoid by adding that word as if it was an added problem? <clears throat> it's for that reason that Caron repeats many of the Sartrean arguments. The most central of these is to speak about different and dialectically 
related ontological states. Where Sartre speaks of the body for others, uh, of the objective body, and of the body for myself, Caron mobilizes this well-known German differentiation between Körper and Leib. And he deals with these as if they were dialectical components of the whole, often articulated like the for itself and the in itself, as Sartre has uh, inherited these from Hegel, namely as demonstrating the unity of opposites, according to which, in Sartre's famous words, and I guess that is what Deleuze meant when he said the first great philosopher of the body, namely, the for itself, by its very nature, demands that it be body. It's one of the central lines of being in nothingness, namely, which says, mind is body, or body is mind. The result of this is that Caron makes the Leib-Körper distinction work in more or less the same way, attempting to avoid to rephrase these as body, mind, spirit, though these seem often to reverberate in these very descriptions. <coughs> now, his careful analysis, as I said, it's a very good text, a very interesting text, certainly worth reading, not only because it exemplifies the two great errors of Sartre, namely, first of all, completely to neglect the idea of being in time as the repetition of metaphysics with the intent of its destruction. Or, what I just quoted, the way of subversion, as he calls it later on. Which is to say, ignoring the historical, critical dimension of the text. And secondly, and I guess this is one of the most common problems of readers of being in time, namely that they all think it is like positive philosophy, which means just a description of the state of the world, of the human being. And then they say, somehow this description here, therefore, is a bit short. And then they say, oh, that's just because he didn't finish the book or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> there was actually an attempt of somebody writing the third part of the book. <clears throat> and secondly, using a dialectical articulation between Körper and life. You might be saying that of the, curb, uh, of the objective body and the body for myself. <clears throat> and they do so in order to differentiate the phenomena of the human body from that of animal life. And this again, I mean, just to remind the not Heideggerians amongst here, it seems to be the one and only thing that although for different reasons Heidegger has in common with Descartes, namely that he refuses again and again, even though you might know the text of 2930, namely the, the famous discussion of boredom and animal animality. Uh, <clears throat> he constantly refuses to understand human embodiment in terms of differentiation or similarities with animal life. And not necessarily because he says there's none, but I mean, that always comes back to this point. Dasein is not animality plus or animality minus or whatever not. Thus, Caron comes down to claiming that the animal is restricted to a körper, which means to the body in the English sense, and does not have a leib, and that this can already be demonstrated by the difference in which the word is present to körper and leib respectively. So this is why I use the German, because otherwise I would just say from body and body, or obviously can't even say living body, because it is clear that an animal is alive. So. That's why Körper and Leib instead. Now this difference, namely how the world is present to it, Caron claims, can be clarified by looking at the presence of the world 
as given in dream. The proof to the pudding, so to speak, he claims, is that animals do not dream. And yet, the very strange thing is when I wrote this paper in my room, in my little study, and there was our relatively huge golden retriever, and whatever evidence tells me, he was certainly dreaming. <laughs> uh, there was no doubt about him dreaming, <clears throat> and quite vividly. Now, that sounds as if this whole Caron paper actually doesn't make any sense if he doesn't even know that dogs dream. But, um, <laughs> as I mentioned, this is actually quite interesting, the discussion otherwise. And in turn, this completely mistaken claim, namely that animals cannot dream, and that that demonstrates the difference by means of which the world is given to the curve of an animal or the life of a human being, would have clarified we're looking to understand this Leiden de Leben, or the living life of Dasein, of human beings, by means of a careful separation from animal life, looking at both of them as objects of deliberation that is doomed to failure. It's not necessarily only Heidegger's view, as you might know, some of you might know Bataille's theory of religion, uh, where he more or less tries to understand, uh, actually, doesn't make sense, to understand our inability to understand uh, animal life. <clears throat> and he always comes back, he calls it the poetic fallacy, namely that we always think either an animal is like a living thing without a soul, which doesn't make much sense, at least not in the platonic sense of the soul, or that it's just an However you try to go along with it, as Bataille tries to demonstrate, like saying the human being is transcendent and the animal is imminent. That's the main discussion that he brings up there. Again, a very interesting text in terms of the embodied life of animality. But as Bataille there demonstrates, it is more or less like Nietzsche says, that the notion of animal life to us is closed off. Uh, obviously, the main part of the Titan, the book called The Theory of Religion, behind that argument, is to say that it is completely closed off, but something that still belongs to ourselves. In the end, it comes down to the fact that this being closed off means we can never really understand, according to the Thai, our own embodied living. In short, my claim here is that reading Heidegger in view of understanding his thought of Leiblichkeit without the problem of what is history or what is Geschichte is about as meaningless as having a cake and denying that its meaning lies in its edibility, while therefore thinking about the body without articulating its radically historical existence is necessary to fall back into some even sophisticated dialectics of psyche and soma, or of mind, body, and spirit. Actually, I haven't said much now in the long minutes that I've been talking already. Uh, except that trying to find the claim that maybe the problem of the body is quite present in being in time, maybe precisely in its problematic nature. So as a warning, considering that Heidegger was not able to say much about this living body in more than 30 years of intensive work, I will not be able to say much in the remaining 18 minutes either. Furthermore, I have to admit that on account of the above argument, I'm not trying to illuminate our understanding of the body by means of a reflection on the history of being. But my interest rather lies in using the question of the body in order to fathom the sense of Heidegger's question of the history of being. So that's what I'm involved with at the moment mainly, namely going through these thousands and thousands of pages of the black notebooks, <coughs> trying to get some kind of illumination on the later work of Heidegger from 
Now, what underlies the question for our bodily existence is then, first of all, the question for space and time. <clears throat> or, as beforehand, how is the world given to this leibende Leben? <clears throat> the question of the Da, therefore, of the There, of Dasein, and that of being towards death. Heidegger clarifies its limited aim of being in time in the contributions to philosophy, in answer to the question why metaphysics understood or understands the notion of eternity as timeless, timeless, sorry, and this timelessness as superior to time and space. This is, I quote, <coughs> in so far as space and time remain concealed and because wherever they come to be determined, this happens by way of the path that leads to them insofar as they are themselves taken as a being of sorts that is as a determined presence. In this way, though, space and time are given over to the most graspable presence, to the Soma, or the body, which is a body in the material sense, or ein stofflich körperhaftes, and to the forms of conversion which occur on this level, metabole, to which space and time are consequent or prevalent. And as long as the dominance of the originary interpretation of being remains unchallenged, the pushing aside of space and time into the realm of the proximate presencing retains its validity and questions as indicated by the title being in time must necessarily remain misunderstood as they demand a fundamental transfiguration of our questioning itself. In other words, the reasons why the word body is not mentioned much at all in being in time is the same reason why it does not mention the word subject or soul, because the soma, as he says here, is the oldest problematic of this unearthing of metaphysics that being in time tries to bring out, <clears throat> will always bring us back to it again. That is why he says later as well that it was at the time of being in time much too difficult to speak about the body. Although, as I said, this was a question from the contribution to philosophy. End quote, anyway. The setting for this is well known to us from Nietzsche and the eternal eternal the same, as we here find the same position, namely that the bodily existence of Zarathustra can lay claim to its reality, which means its Wirklichkeit, so that's a German word for reality, but it <coughs> means not, not res, reality, but wirken, which means action or actuality, <coughs> only by leaving the empty representations of space and time on behalf of the spirit of gravity behind itself. It is this attempt to think, what is space and time? How is the world present to the body? but means, first of all, of distinguishing itself from the abstract representations on account of the mind or the spirit of gravity. I don't know, but I guess many of you will at least know the passages of the Zarathustran, because they seem to be the most famous and most often read of them. Now, here in Nietzsche's work, <coughs> the question of the body is equally enigmatic, not only because the body is in principle more enigmatic than the mind, but because its phenomena are obscured by, way, by the way that they represent space and time to us, and more fundamentally, because at the root of the Leiden der Leben, of this living life, not embodied life, sorry, lies the impossibility of the incorporation of its own truth. 
Incorporation in the English translation is again the gender einverleiben, which means to make part of the body, to bring it into itself. As Nietzsche says, our experience, <coughs> and it will become quite significant to the thought of the body, that he does not say, for example, our ideas of, but our experience of space and time lead us into error. Now, I made clear already the introductory quotation that the body is, for Nietzsche, that which is eminently historical, in which the whole of the more uh, distant and the recent past becomes body. And then, from that position of it, it's not too difficult to see why he says it is not, not our ideas of space and time, not our representations of them, but our experience of space and time, which lead us into error. <clears throat> and this is equally Heidegger's stance taken with respect to a body it was always essentially implicated the notion of existence as being there. As people have pointed out, the relatively obvious thing, maybe, to be there requires some kind of bodily beginning. <clears throat> but whose explication seems to have to await our historic insertion or leap into Dasein. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Thus Heidegger concludes in the Solikoner Seminar, or Seminars of Solikon, whatever they're called, I quote, if this is the case, then we can only bring the phenomenon of the Leib into perspective once that we properly experience our being in the world itself, sustain such being, and expressly take it over as the fundamental trait of human Dasein, by means of the critical overcoming of the subject-object relation, which remains today the measure of all experience. It is necessary to see that the sciences as such, that the theoretical scientific knowledge as such, are modes founded in being in the world, founded in the embodied having of a world, or the Leibliche Haben der Welt. <clears throat> this is not something new in Solikonde Seminare, as he says, I mean, all scientific endeavor, that's neuroscience, whatever it might be, can be understood in its essence only if you realize that it actually is the fundamental <coughs> activity of Leibniz Leben, which means that it's based on that what it afterwards tries to be able to explain. To say this again in terms of Heidegger's methodology, we will not be able to bring the phenomenon of the living body into perspective before we have gone through the movement from the destruction of being and time to the critical setting apart with a history of being as attempted in his later works under the title of The Question for the History of Being. <clears throat> From here also follows Heidegger's main criticism against Nietzsche's philosophizing about the body, namely when he repeatedly says in the Nietzsche lectures uh, from the end 30s, beginning 90s, uh, sorry, 40s obviously, it wasn't quite that long, <clears throat> that Nietzsche's mistake was to have borrowed from biology and thus to have imported into his thought results achieved by a science which necessarily presupposes the separation of mind and body from the position of its methodology and that from a completely necessarily ignored embodied having of world, but also in radicalizing the claim so that Dasein, human beings, should not and could not be understood in any sense of relation to animality nor the human body in relation to that of an animal. 
That is a claim that can be easily phrased. You can type it on the computer without difficulties, especially if it's, if it's a spell checker, but difficult to follow. Its repercussions on any idea of, for example, contemporary neuroscience are obviously of the utmost importance. And we find here the relation between such contemporary developments and the problem mentioned above that many Heideggerians themselves have with the later Heidegger, its presumed abstraction and the criticism of what they think of as the everyday, which means not any longer quite as pragmatical. <coughs> and yet the center, so this was only supposed to be 20 minutes, five. <coughs> Nearly somewhere at the end. And yet the center of Heidegger's critique of Nietzsche, notwithstanding all the affirmative remarks in the Nietzsche lectures, does not bear on this famous dictum that Nietzsche borrowed from biology. Indeed, the fact that he has borrowed from biology implies precisely that his account of the body is not biological, but philosophical. And this is why Nietzsche, precisely by way of his thinking of the body, is, according to Heidegger, the last metaphysician, but not the first biologist. As Heidegger says, a quote from the Nietzsche lectures, the animality of the human being in Nietzsche has a deeper metaphysical reason than could ever be explained in biological scientific terms with reference to a somewhat present and outwardly similar animal species. So it's not quite as, sorry, why I brought that out, because I don't manage at all in the paper to come to Merleau-Ponty, luckily, because otherwise it would take more than an hour. But at least I can now mention Merleau-Ponty because people have always said, oh, Merleau-Ponty is a nice guy because I mean, he listens to scientists and he brings in all this kind of biological science and so on into his reflections and therefore learns from scientists. Uh, I don't want to go into specifics because I don't think that's actually true. <clears throat> I mean, it's a completely different thing to elaborate phenomena from the sciences from taking them into the kind of structural account of Merleau-Ponty's philosophy. <clears throat> Whereas they always said that Heidegger, on the other hand, is the guy who is just abstract, who just seems to make it up all from the top of his head instead. But here it is not again that he complains that Nietzsche borrows from biology in that, that sense, namely of just taking some kind of results into his argumentation, but that this deeper metaphysical ground uh, really is that which brings together Nietzsche and Aristotle. <clears throat> That is what Heidegger then in the following argues. Namely, this rapprochement between Nietzsche and Aristotle closes the circle leading from Aristotle's physics to Nietzsche's will to power. Saying that you yourself and this world as such are the, world to, uh, sorry, the will to power and nothing besides. The sentence conceived on the ground of Nietzsche's later sort of physiology of art, which means of thinking of art through the living body, <clears throat> is for Nietzsche to say, that the truth of this world is, once and for all, chaos. Chaos, as he further clarifies, does not lack necessity, but is itself life, life whose order is hidden from it. As such, it is the concealed wealth of the pure becoming of the world, the truth of the organism, and yet that truth that it cannot itself incorporate. So maybe I should make that clear because we were talking all the time, or I was actually, sorry, uh, about how the world is given to the body. <clears throat> and uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, the first notice that Nietzsche wrote in Sils Maria in 1881 
when you have the illumination of the eternal return. Uh, and he makes five points that now become important from that insight in terms of all our philosophy. And one of them, namely number three, if I'm correct in this, or two, or four, one of them, uh, is precisely this question of the, the absolute necessity of the incorporation, the Einverleibung, of all our errors, all our thoughts, and all our experience. And yet, this incorporation, which elsewhere he calls as well the highest will to power, is precisely that which always leads towards precisely this problem, that the body, it seems, cannot become quite present to itself. That there is always this truth of the organism, the truth that cannot be incorporated. To speak of the disappearance of the body as the most enigmatic phenomenon of privation can thus be clarified through that which Nietzsche is after in the conception of intoxication, which Heidegger reads quite aptly as fundamental attunement. The differentiation of will and attunement, maybe will to power as life, which arises from the conception of intoxication and which becomes the principium individuationis of any singular force, becomes possible on account of this impossibility of Einverleiden, incorporation, in an analogous way of Dasein's possibilities arising, sorry, this is, you know, these kind of word games, from the possibility of its impossibility in being towards death. This is why Heidegger can say that the meaning of chaos in Nietzsche is nothing else but das leibende Leben or the bodying forth life. As I said, I can't really quite translate it. The question of embodiment is therefore identified with the notion of attunement in this sense to say that wir leben in dem wir leiben it's one of these other... <coughs> actually, in the end of this paper, you can at least speak a bit of German. Uh, we live in that we embody, if that would make sense. <coughs> this is to say that the body has to be understood as effective, bearing in mind that Heidegger guards himself from understanding affect as a psychological notion, which is to say that the body is not thought here in its singularity, but in its coexistence with the notion of being in the world. The proper place of the discussion of the body and being in time, therefore, and thus in relation to the notion of stimmung or attunement, thought as the clarification of existence. Now what has happened here in the understanding of chaos as the leibende Leben, Nietzsche determines the idea of the world itself as such, as metabole, or as kinesis, in the broadest sense of the word. The difference that here appears between the embodied life and the will, and of intoxication as the heightening and intensification of the will, clarifies the main character of this will as Symbalane, as drawing together this movement of the world in the service of its own self-surpassing, or, as Nietzsche says, as stamping the image of being onto becoming. So this was still a kind of summary, more or less, of the critique of Heidegger of Nietzsche's idea of life. <coughs> and so to speak, trying to clarify why the foremost Nietzschean of the 20th century, namely Heidegger, never quite brought about this discussion that all philosophy, according to Nietzsche, is now looking forward to, namely of the body. <clears throat> because this, according to Heidegger, is not a surpassing of the metaphysical notion of the human being, 
but rather development of the Aristotelian understanding of the human being in its relation to the world. This is where I quote one last quotation, uh, <clears throat> where the circle between Aristotle and Nietzsche on the body is closed. Uh, this comes from uh, Erdelin's hymn, The Eastern, where Heidegger says, the normative delimitation of the essence of place and of time for all metaphysics is found in the physics. Roughly speaking, this entails that place and time are not conceived in terms of the relation to history or to human beings as historical, but rather are thought with respect to mere processes of movement in general. As such, the places and sequences of events in human history also fall into dimensions, that is, into those realms in which space and time can be measured numerically. The representations of space and time that have held reign for almost two and a half thousand years are of a metaphysical kind." End quote. The problem, as Heidegger said often enough, lies in Nietzsche's attempt of the reversal of metaphysics, which will always, in the end, necessarily retain himself within it. In the end, one might say that the notion of privation that lies at the center of Heidegger's reflection in the 29-30 lectures on the question of animality and human being. This problem of privation makes the problem of understanding the body look a bit like Kierkegaard's image of the proof of the existence of God. Whenever we are trying to prove or understand the existence of the body, it has already gone. But when we let go of it, it exists. As I said, these were just kind of a few vague reflections on the problems that people after me can think about in their own way. Thank you. Thank you.